welcome to The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley. If you're listening to this, you probably watched the first Clinton-Trump debate Monday night. There was a ton of advance hype, and in terms of viewership, it seems to have been borne out. Apparently, it was the most watched debate in U.S. history. As for the debate itself, as the dust settles, Clinton fans seem to be thrilled with her performance, Donald Trump loyalists a bit less so. But then there are the people who don't fit neatly into either category. Ira Stoll is a West Roxbury resident who's written for The New York Sun, The Forward, and Reason magazine. He's also written two books, Samuel Adams, A Life, and JFK, Conservative. He says he's still not sure if he's going to vote for Trump in November or move to Israel if Trump wins. Peter Kazis and I talked with Ira about what he saw Monday night and why his own feelings about Trump remain so conflicted. Take a listen. So, as you know, we're hoping to talk to you about what you saw in the debate last night. Let me start by making sure that I situate you properly as an observer of the debate. Are you now or were you ever at any time in the past? Let me ask again. Are you now or were you ever at any time in the past a never Trumper or did that label not apply to you? Well, the closest I got was saying privately to some friends and family that if Trump got elected president, I was going to move to Israel. Um, I... I've been having this argument with myself where I, I, I'm trying to talk myself into voting for Trump, but I haven't really made the final sale yet, and I may not ever. I, I'm not a big fan of his. All right. Thank you for that, that overview. Oh, go ahead, Peter. I was going to say, Ira is the closest we've ever come and will probably ever have to a Trump supporter on the scrum, <laughs> unless we get Jeff Deal on it. Yeah, point. unless we get Deal on and he'll fit that bill. But all right, so so now that we've kind of sketched out where you're coming from, and we'll, I think, get into it more as we have this conversation, but uh, as someone who might vote for Trump or might flee to Israel if he's elected president, what did you see in the debate? Well, in a way, the expectation is so low. Right. I mean, you could argue that he won just by showing up, not wearing a full fledged Nazi uniform or Ku Klux Klan <laughs> robes and not frothing at the mouth. Um, so I, he met that bar. It's a low bar. But if <laughs> all you've been if all you've been following is how he's being depicted in what he calls an arm of the Hillary campaign, the mainstream media, uh, you know, you might be pleasantly surprised. Or if all you're following is his Twitter feed and looking at who he retweets, you yeah. might, if you're, you know, that, that could also lead you to think he might show up with a Grand Wizard outfit on. You know, what got me this morning, I mean, Adam and I covered the debate by emailing each other throughout and our editor, uh, Brendan Lynch, you know, put it together and we published immediately. So I was, you know, in a very narrow place watching the debate. But this morning, watching on the the various cable morning shows and listening later on on NPR largely, it was a whole different debate. 
it, it it's amazing the degree to which film clips and audio clips sanitized the debate and made both of them, but Trump especially, sound so much better. Um, I, I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but, you, you know, it's the nature of the news because you only get small bits of them that I think to appreciate the true horror that was the debate, um, you, you had to watch it all. And I, of course, start from the, the persnickety uh, position that I don't think the debates mean as much as most people in the media do. But um, I happen to watch it in Brookline with a bunch of very liberal people who talked over Trump for much of the time. And one of them said, before we sat down to watch it, I don't even know why I'm bothering to watch this. I already know who I'm voting for. It's not like I'm going to vote for Trump. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I think there's a, a large portion of people who are in that camp, but there are some undecided voters, maybe some people who are tuning in, paying attention for the first time in some swing states. Uh, and for them may have made an impression. All right, let me focus again. And, and if I go too far in this direction, let me know and I'll, I'll shift gears. But I want to focus on you personally because I love the, the two options that you outlined uh, a minute ago. What did you hear last night that you would place in the vote for Trump column? And what did you hear that you would put in the maybe move to Israel <laughs> In in uh, in 2017 column. Right. Well, so in the vote for Trump column, one of the things that really troubles me about him is his anti-immigrant stance. And, you know, whenever I say that to a die-in-the-wool Trump person who's trying to convince me, they say, oh, he's not anti-immigrant. He's just anti-illegal immigrant. Well, that's not really true. If you watched his big immigration speech a couple of weeks ago, he also was talking about having a commission to cut or a pause to cut back legal immigration. And I, I'm a grandson of an immigrant. Uh, I think I'm a great grandson of someone who may have been an illegal immigrant. I proposed to my wife at Ellis Island. I think immigrants make America great. I became a conservative by reading uh, editorials in the Wall Street Journal editorial page calling for open borders on the grounds of sort of deregulation and, and freedom of immigration. It seems like a basic human right to me. And surprisingly good for me, Trump last night hardly talked about immigration at all. He wasn't blaming all of America's economic problems or the economic problems of middle income or lower middle income American workers on Mexicans coming here and taking away their jobs, which has been a big theme of his campaign to date. He didn't talk about building the wall. And, you know, people who said afterwards that he had a poor debate performance talked about that as an example of how he wasn't able to keep the debate on his issues and how he let the agenda get away from him. But for me, as a voter who thinks uh, open immigration is an important issue, th that uh, was good for me for Trump last night. All right. So that is in the cast a vote for Trump and maybe stick around column. Anything else that belongs in that column prominently or in the um, oh, man, I shudder to think what would happen if this guy was in the White House column? I think another place where he was effective, at least from my perspective, was in criticizing Hillary in connection with the Iran nuclear deal. 
N talking about how American soldiers were uh, sailors in, in the Persian Gulf were being captured by the Iranians or harassed and how America has been really made to look weak in the in the Middle East. And I think that's an effective line of attack. And also he made the case for change. I mean, he said that Hillary has been there for 30 years trying to fix these problems and hasn't succeeded. And, uh, you know, that that's also effective uh, from from my perspective where he where he gave me some pause and made me worried was actually some of the places where he he. Uh, agreed with almost Bernie Sanders in the left wing of the Democratic Party, criticizing Clinton on on NAFTA, which I think was one of Bill Clinton's greatest accomplishments and, uh, you know, got a lot of Republican votes when it passed. Uh, um, so, you know, Republicans have been free traders traditionally. Uh, and, and a trade is a, ta- a tariff is a tax. Uh, so when he t- talks about raising tariffs on imports, that scares me away. And... Um, I guess the other um, the the other place where I didn't like what Trump was doing was when he was um, agreeing with Hillary on on paid family leave, and you know he basically said we're we we agree on that, and you know that's just a big government regulation on employers to force them to 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 pay workers more and you know i think companies should be left to do what they want in that area let me make a point here i'm sort of a student of the big lie in politics and i i have to admit it's like a guilty pleasure i love the big lie you know fdr said uh, i'll balance the budget JFK said the USA is way behind the USSR in missiles. Nixon said, I have a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. Reagan, cutting taxes will make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now, Bush said, read my lips, no new taxes. And Bill Clinton said, I did not have sex with that woman. You know, you're not supposed to get caught. Then there's Obama. Of course, you can take your health plan with you. So... What's this have to do with Trump? Trump is ruining the big lie. You know, the guy is so truth-challenged that he can't lie selectively. He even denied that he was sniffling during the debate. He's an addict. Someone needs to stage an intervention. He can't successfully lie about his secret plan to defeat ISIS because he's just lying about everything else. Trump devalues the big lie by telling so many little ones. And um, I think he makes our political culture that much less as a result. But he has, I I take your point about him being truth challenged. The New York Times ran that synopsis of 31 things he'd misrepresented over the course of a week. By the same token, I, I, I believe he is different than Clinton in this regard. She, as you've pointed out in the past, Peter, has had her own moments like oh, yeah. misrepresenting what the FBI director had to say about her handling of her private email server, uh, something she dropped last night, I think, because it was such a ridiculous misrepresentation the first time around that she decided she couldn't run with it. All that being said, if Trump misrepresents again and again and again on whether he thinks global warming is a Chinese hoax, on whether he did or didn't uh, make positive comments about the Iraq war before it started, on a bunch of other things, 
doesn't the fact that he's gotten this far and is running neck and neck with Hillary Clinton and seemed, at least until yesterday, to have the momentum in the race, we'll see what happens in, in the coming days, doesn't that all show that he's realized that uh, it's not the big lie that wins for you, but it's sustained and repeated misrepresentation of, of the truth that, well, that gets the job done? And Ira, feel free to hop in here because Peter and I can kick this stuff around anytime in the office. Well, I mean, I would just say he's not running for fact check. He's not applying to be a fact checker at The New Yorker. He's applying to be president of the United States. So I think voters discount a little bit for small misrepresentations and they care more about big issues. And so the, take the Iraq war is a great, perfect example. Hillary voted for the Iraq war. Yep. It's right on the record. There's, you know, video yeah. of her. I mean, it's championed it's, it. Yes. So now Trump now is running to her left, essentially, on the Iraq war that he, he wouldn't have done it. And, you know, you could argue, well, the Esquire article was in 2004 and the Howard Stern interview was in 2002. Yep. And wh what exactly was the nuance of what he said to Howard Stern? And did he privately say something to Sean Hannity? Why hasn't anyone and called Sean Hannity? It, why hasn't anyone called Sean Hannity? I think voters, you know, can see a bigger picture there. And they say, all right, this guy is and this is the truth of the matter. He's running to the left of Hillary on the Iraq war. And, you know, I don't think that's a fact checking issue. I think that's that's the truth of the matter. And it tells you something about what he's going to do if there's a if who's going to be more likely to intervene and cause a war in the Middle East. Well, see, my, my beef with Hillary is more that I don't think she learns from her mistakes. Take Whitewater, where there really wasn't anything to it. You know, her cover-up mode nevertheless made Whitewater worse than it should have been, as well as, you know, shoddy journalism by the New York Times. Take these emails. She claims there was nothing to them. The FBI says ultimately there wasn't. Fine. But, boy, she sure acted guilty as hell throughout the whole thing. Did she learn anything from the Whitewater experience? I don't think so. The same with Iraq, you know, Iraq and the war in Libya. Did she learn? She claims she learned from her mistake in Iraq, but then helps helps bring us into intervention in Libya. Um, but, you know, I think Trump's a menace. But I, I'm still fascinated and interested when, in Trump's supporters. To me, the key to this election, if, if Trump does lose, and I'm not sure he will, um, is his supporters. What makes them tick? It's a new political force. I'm so glad that you said what you just did because this is actually my big question for you, Ira. You mentioned Trump's stance on free trade and how it's totally on the opposite end of the political spectrum from where you were when you first became a conservative. You mentioned his eagerness to expand paid family leave and how he's basically talking about this huge new entitlement program. Uh, you also mentioned that he's running to the left of Hillary Clinton on the Iraq war and has styled himself overall as sort of an American first or an isolationist as opposed to a, a, an interventionist abroad. So many of these things represent a total departure from conservative orthodoxy. I'm wondering why you think so many conservatives and so many Republicans have been willing to not just accept Trump, but embrace him 
as he's essentially changed the definition of what it means to be a Republican. Why is that? Well, I think there are some issues where, from a conservative perspective, he'd clearly be better. Judges, Obamacare, he'll probably roll back Obamacare rather than expand it. Uh, gun rights is is another one, uh, even though he agreed with Hillary last night on the uh, taking away guns from people on this uh, without really due process on this government no-fly list of potential suspected maybe terrorists. Uh, taxes is another big one. I mean, it, despite the tariffs uh, threat, in general, he wants to cut corporate taxes while Hillary won't even go as far as President Obama ha- has in calling for a reduction in the corporate tax rate. So those are policy-based reasons. But there's another big reason, which is – well, it's like the old bumper sticker, uh, you know, vote for Nixon, annoy a liberal. Uh, you know, the the fact that <laughs> that people in Cambridge and Brookline and all these Ivy League colleges and the New York Times are so uh, anxious about Trump and would be so upset if he got elected and are so can't imagine why half the country might think of voting for him is an attraction just to see the reaction. It would drive liberals nuts. And I think for a lot of Trump voters, that's the attraction. Yeah, although it's interesting, John Podoritz, in what I think, I think he wrote this piece, uh, published it in March in Commentary. Um, I I think one of the, it might be the single best piece on getting a handle on Trump, and that's Trump is the revenge vote, you know. To, that totally fits what you just said, right? Yeah, I mean, and and Podoritz, um, uh is very anti-Trump, but he he again hasn't he kind of been coming around a little bit? Revenge on Obama, revenge on on the liberal establishment. I mean, revenge, revenge. No, revenge I think the, the, the I I think the liberal establishment, the um the the you know the. The, the larger culture of liberalism, you know, what people handily call political correctness. Coastal elites. Yeah, coastal elites. Um, I mean, I know a couple of guys who, out of deference to their wives, I will not mention them, who are um, uh, Trump people. And uh, I think the reason they're supporting Trump is they're – sick of the disdain with which their conservative opinions are held by the larger society. And I do think there's something to that, and I understand that. That Both your, your takes make a lot of sense. i got to mention one more thing. Not, not like I think I'm going to show that the dynamics you've described shouldn't be operative, but one of the things that I have been most troubled by coming from Trump throughout this campaign is – his seeming admiration for Vladimir Putin and for the way Putin has run Russia. Um, we all know that Putin has done terrible things in that country. Trump seems to be thrilled by his strength uh, to a point where uh, I think BuzzFeed the other day recently dug up a quote from Trump back in 2014, if memory serves, in which Trump said he's not necessarily comfortable with the phrase American exceptionalism because Putin once said, who are they to think they're exceptional? And that was Trump's reason for questioning the concept of American <laughs> exceptionalism. Shouldn't that give all Americans 
pause. Whether you are a hard right Republican or a Bernie Sanders super lefty. Well, I'm not sure which part the 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 attraction of a di- of a the attraction yeah, the of a strong the, man or a dictator the or the that, Russia angle because the, the, the fact Russia that the Republican angle. nominee seems to take Putin as at least one of his models for what a good leader is a guy who you know is is basically running as a dictator who I think there's good reason to think has presided over the killing of journalists and people who disagree with his regime. Yeah. I mean, yeah, see, four years ago, Mitt Romney said Russia was our number one geopolitical foe and liberals scoffed and conservatives cheered and said, yeah, Russia is. And now all of a sudden, the you know, uh, Russia's going to win the Cold War if the election goes uh, a certain way, at least to my mind. So, yeah. I so, I mean, I, I think the the geopolitics of the world has changed somewhat so that militant Violent extremist Islam is now the biggest threat, and not uh, not Russia. And just like Trump is being advised a little bit by Henry Kissinger, who's thought we needed to ally with China against the Soviet threat under Nixon, um, or at least open to China. You know, maybe it's there is room for a tactical alliance with Putin against violent militant extremist Islam, ISIS. Uh, and, you know, to me, the fact that Trump is willing to consider that is is actually speaks well of him, that he's open minded about uh, change as opposed to being stuck in kind of a Cold War rut. Um, and that doesn't make uh, that doesn't make Russia's human rights record excusable. Of course not. But, you know, we we also work with Saudi Arabia against Iraq. And, you know, there's there's tactical. We work with Soviet Union against Nazi Germany in World War Two. That's a good point. So it doesn't make you concerned that he would, uh, if elected president, share Putin's disdain for civil liberties, for example? Well, you know, he's running against someone in Hillary Clinton who um, gave a reset button to the Russian foreign minister, and who yeah, it was like a gag gift, a f- novelty gift. Fa- right? Foundation Foundation uh, has all kinds of dealings with this Canadian uranium miner who's doing deals with the the Russians. So I, I, I don't. But she hasn't. And it, points taken. But she has not talked admiringly about Putin. No, she's right. attacking Trump for it. I and mean, it's almost McCarthyite. I mean, if if a Republican well, was attacking a Democrat <laughs> on this, on no, this no, Russia but, no, so but, hard. Wait, wait, hold on. She, she hasn't attacked Trump. She has not spoken about Putin as a model leader. And Trump has done that. Trump has talked about how high Putin's polls numbers are. <laughs> Trump has talked about how, unlike Obama, at least Putin is strong. I take your point about the Clinton Foundation, but that's something. This is something different. Admiring Putin the way that Trump seems to, or do you think it's all just an act? You know, I I I'm troubled by it, but I'm also troubled by the Obama administration's opening ties to Cuba and Iran. You know, so there's plenty of dictators to go around. Trump is internationally a dope. Um, he may be being advised by Henry Kissinger and stuff, but it's hard to to take him seriously there. Where I do take him seriously is domestically in his populist plea. And he was very effective to his supporters when he talked about, well, you've been in office for 30 years and, you know, you're just another politician and all that. But she was very effective when she was talking about the economy and all. Now, effective to her 
audience. See, to me, this was the the Tuesday, the Monday night debate was really each candidate solidifying their bases. Peter, I just want to push back you a little bit before I get Ira to peer into his crystal ball and tell us uh, what to expect in the next two debates if they happen in the duration of this campaign and then in a Trump presidency if he makes it to the White House. I'm not sure that Clinton was effective talking about the economy in large part because she could not bring herself to express any reservations about or understanding of the frustration with NAFTA and free trade more broadly speaking, which has been such an engine driving Trump's candidacy and Bernie Sanders, who gave Clinton this unexpectedly strong primary challenge. I would have thought that by this point in the campaign, Clinton would have figured out a way to say, you know, I think free trade's important. I think NAFTA was a good thing uh, for my husband to have have, uh, ushered into law as president. But I understand that it's created dislocations that frustrate people in states like Ohio and Michigan, both of which Trump gave a shout out to. Clinton can't get herself to do that. She hasn't figured out a way to acknowledge that when it comes to trade, there free trade, there are winners and losers and that her path to the White House has now been blocked uh, by two guys who have tapped into those frustrations. And it kind of boggles my mind that she can't exercise that sympathetic faculty still. And I think, uh, and I believe I tweeted this last night, I think if she does not win this election, it's going to be that failure that is going to be a a huge reason why. I don't know if you two buy that. Well, a quick observation on my part. Um, I take your point there. That's, That's interesting. And I think it has less to do with the issue that the issue of free trade, of uh, free trade, yeah, uh, free and fair trade, is e- emblematic of um, her uh, lack of an ideological core. That um, I've always thought Hillary was very Nixon-esque. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think she believes in feminism, and I believe her family and domestic stuff is all here. But um, I I I see, you know, a, a lot of Nixon-esque opportunism. Um, and to paraphrase Richard Nixon, I mean that in the best sense of the phrase in in Hillary Clinton. Ira, as a fan of free trade, uh, would you agree with my contention that she was kind of weak in terms of recognizing or channeling the frustrations of people who who found their lives changed uh, for the worse as a result of it? Well, it, it is a bit of a dilemma for her because she she's got to run defending the 90s, not – attacking the 90s and she doesn't want to get in a debate with Al you know Al Gore is one of her campaign proxies and Al Gore famously had this CNN debate with Ross Perot over NAFTA so and and Bill Clinton's been a huge defender of of NAFTA uh so is Larry Summers who calls it the, one of the biggest tax cuts in American history so you know you get you start getting into Bill Hillary drama, and it's a week of New York tabloid uh, uh, front pages about, you know, n- maybe the next debate, there'll be an editorial cartoon, Bill and Hillary should show up on stage. Uh, yeah. And it, it starts to be not the story that that she wants. But yeah, she does need to show sympathy for these lower income workers who are traditionally a big part of the Democratic base and who are, she's losing them to Trump. All right. So I want you two to look into your crystal balls here and 
Talk about what we're going to see for the duration of the campaign. Just broad predictions about how this is going to play out. Ira, I would love to have you in here again, but it probably won't be until after we know who the next president is going to be. So my first question, will there be two more debates or might Trump decide he's going to skip out? I think I think he'll he'll stick around. It helps him to to it helps him appear to be a plausible president to be on stage with Hillary Clinton with all these people watching. Peter Kansas? Yeah, I don't know. I would say he'll be in for another one um, at the minimum. And the reason for that is I I don't think he'd want to exit the stage in a losing posture. Um, that's as far as I go on that particular issue. All right. Let's give Ira the last word since he's our guest and he came into the studios. Ira, what do you uh, anticipate between now and Election Day? And let me also ask you to uh, maybe try to make a commitment here about what you think you're going to do if uh, if Donald Trump wins. Are you going to stick around or are you going to um, get uh, get to Israel instead? Well, I mean, the course of the campaign now has been that it's been tightening and it was starting to look like a Clinton blowout. And then she caught pneumonia and keeled over and and there were a bunch of terrorist attacks. And all of a sudden it was neck and neck. And she knocked the deplorables. Yes. Uh, So I think. Trump has to be pretty lucky to have another week or two like these last two where Hillary gets sick and there's terrorist attacks. On the other hand, there have been a lot of terrorist attacks, and that's one reason that that Trump's, you know, ban the Muslims from coming in, build a wall uh, stuff is resonating. Uh, So... Uh, you know, it's it almost depends on some things that we can't control. I mean, Hillary's health, who, who knows what how, what that's going to be. Uh, world events, who knows what that's going to be. I think absent those things, she has a bit of an edge and uh, I'll be able to stay here in America. Uh, but um, who knows? There's plenty of uh, one-year fellowships or uh, <laughs> available uh in in Israel, and uh, you know, I uh, my my family, even though we're immigrants, we've been in America for a long time, and we've got some some deep roots here, and we like it here. And uh, you know, I, I I I'd like to think it'll take more than Donald Trump to scare us away. And who knows, we could be pleasantly surprised, and he some of this stuff, extremism, may be bargaining. Can we uh, check back in with you after the election to find out what you did? I know that won't necessarily uh, nail down your long-term plans, but can we check in to say, hey, did you uh, did you actually cast a, uh, a vote for Trump? It would be my pleasure. Excellent. All right, Ira, thanks a lot for coming in. This was fun. Good to be here. And that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Ira Stoll for talking with me and Peter and to you for listening. We'd love to get your take. Was Monday's debate a game changer? And does the conservative case for Trump really hold up? You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or tweet us. I'm at Riley Adam and Peter is at Kansas. We'd also love it if you subscribed to the Scrum on iTunes and took the time to rate us. You can also find the Scrum at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum and on a whole bunch of different podcatchers. 
Our engineer for this episode was John Parker. Our producer is Jason Tureski, and I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. 